and then we take it deeper. Science is actually just affirming things that Platonists and philosophers already intuited um, metaphysically and logically, and science is just reaffirming the truth of Platonism um, and, and paganism in general, because paganism is yeah. by definition just the sincere belief, just the sincere effort of trying to understand the cosmos and live correctly. Your pain is moaning, your call is rent, your barns will be full and your harvest yet. Come, boys, come, come, boys, come, and merrily roar out our harvest. And merrily roar out our harvest. Harvest home. a school night. I wanted to get one of these in before the end of December. And you know, I kind of like Christmas more than I like New Year's. So why not do it on December 24th? Everything just worked out today for me to do this. And I'm going to treat this one sort of like I do this summer episode. It's become sort of an annual thing each summer, the last two summers at least. And I plan on doing it in the future, unless I disappear. You know, unless I disappear, I plan on doing a summer episode like that. And today is going to be kind of the same thing. A little bit different, but also it's going to be a winter episode. It's going to be a holy pagan night episode. And what does that mean? Holy paganism. Holy paganism. Those things do seem mutually exclusive. I don't think they are, though. I don't think they are. You know, there was a there's a cult underground band uh, that came up with the phrase punks is hippies. I know a lot of people like that one. Punks is hippies. I'm not into punks. I'm not into hippies. I'm not into either one of those things. But what I will say is Christians is pagans. Punks is hippies. It's none of my business. Christians is pagans. And, you know, and obviously the bridge between those things is Anglo-Saxons. 
you could accuse me of getting all Anglo-Saxon by putting Christianity together with paganism. It's like that prince they found buried in England who had... It was some sort of Anglo-Saxon prince, and it was a Viking burial, but he had crosses on his eyes. I think they were made of metal, maybe silver, but they had laid crosses on his eyes. So here it was, this pagan burial, but with these Christian symbols. And I mean, whether you're Christian or not, you have to like the idea of putting crosses on someone's eyes as you bury them. That's just a visually cool idea. And no pun intended about the whole visually thing, you know, because as a dead person, you're not the one seeing them. I think as an observer, it's for the excavators. No, it really wouldn't be. When you put crosses on a Anglo-Saxon prince's eyes, when you lay crosses on his dead body's eyes, that's for something else. That's not for the excavators. That's not for us. That's for something else. But, you know, it is a Christian time of year, but it's also a pagan time of year. As I mentioned in a recent school night, people like to get into the whole, it's it's Yuletide. The Christians stole this time of year from everybody else. And my take on that is just that I think a lot of people have a certain sense for this period right now. There's something about December, in particular the end of December, that is obviously significant, and we feel it. Even when it's not rubbed in our faces, we're just kind of aware of it. And that's something that Christianity and paganism have in common. And, you know, thinking about Christianity, because it is Christmas, Christianity tells a different story of heroism. You know, we're so used to certain stories of heroism, and Christianity is about heroism, but it's a very different sort of story. You know, I I believe it was revolutionary in the way that it deals with that subject. Maybe not, because, I mean, it's, it's similar to what you see from Gautama Buddha, you know, where these aren't what you would expect from a hero, yet it's clear that these are the heroes in their respective stories. But, you know, Jesus doesn't do what a normal hero is expected to do, you know, even in a biblical context, because the Old Testament is full of just savage heroes, So it's not like the Bible is trying to ignore that. It's not like the Bible ignores what we expect of a hero, a guy with a sword fighting for what he believes is right. You know, it's not that the Bible ignores that, but in the New Testament, you have this new hero who only heals and never fights. And he's completely self-sacrificing. He's basically a white mage. You know, the way Jesus is portrayed, the, the way he's portrayed visually as well as the way he's described, you'd consider him a white mage in the RPG sense. You know, the, R- the, the white mage in RPGs is always poor on offense, but strong on defense, strong on healing magic. That's the whole point of the white mage, defense and healing. And, you know, when you're given the option in those kinds of games, you know, in RPGs, you're sometimes given the uh, given the option of choosing who's in your party, and it's very tempting and easy to think that you should have a whole party of swordsmen or offensive characters, because that's the fun stuff. The fun stuff about, I mean, what little fun there is in the battles of an RPG, because, I mean, that's not really the appeal of those games. 
But what little fun you have is the offensive characters, the characters who can cast damaging spells, the swordsmen. And so the idea of having a choice and selecting a white mage, you, you kind of don't want to do it. You're like, it's kind of a, it's a boring option. All this character can do is heal. They do no damage with their little staff. But, you know, as soon as you do actually put a white mage in your party in an RPG, you realize how great it is, how convenient it is to have one person who is dedicated to healing and casting protective spells. You know, it, it actually makes it a lot more fun because you don't have to use these characters who are inept at healing. You know, you don't have to have them wasting items. You have these people who can cast powerful healing spells. So when you actually do put a white mage in your party... It just ends up making the game more fun all around. There's a balance. It's funny how even in that, there's this balance where you know, you have to kind of give in and say, hey, I'm not going to have a bunch of cool-looking, fun swordsmen in my party. I'm also going to have the kind of, you know, the frail character, uh, you know, who just casts healing spells. Was Jesus frail? I don't think so. I mean, I think that's what makes the character of Jesus so compelling, is he's somebody who did what he did voluntarily. Jesus wasn't a healer. He wasn't a white mage because he was unable to do anything else. I think he probably could have been a swordsman. He probably could have been something else entirely. But when somebody's a white mage by choice, I find that fascinating. Um... You know, I read a Michael Moorcock book not too long ago about a guy who travels back to the period of the New Testament to find the real Jesus, but he discovers Jesus is a mentally challenged boy who can't even form sentences. So the time traveler ends up half intentionally becoming Jesus just to complete the story of the Bible, just to kind of prove it. He ends up, you know, not even, not completely by choice. He does put himself in the situation, but he just kind of, kind of just becomes the de facto Jesus, and people start believing that's who it is. He acts out the myth. And, you know, the book was pretty blasphemous, and not in a head-on direct way, but the sort of blasphemy I guess you'd expect from somebody like Michael Moorcock. You know, I'm so used to this in-your-face satanic blasphemy that's become mainstream since the 80s, maybe. You know, since... I would say it's become popular since the 80s, and it's become casual. You know, at least when bands started, you know, directly using satanic imagery, there was something controversial about it. But now Satanism is just treated casually. You know, most people, I mean, unless you're a fundamentalist Christian, most people don't take offense to the fact that people walk around with pentagrams on their shirts. You know, so it's that sort of direct, deliberate blasphemy doesn't really do much for me, you know, and I'm just so used to it that coming across subtle blasphemy, you know, coming across kind of, you know, much more subtle blasphemy is the way I would put it in the form of this Michael Moorcock book. It was kind of jarring. I would say it was jarring in its own way because, I mean, that's what happens when you're so used to things being head on, when you're so used to things being a certain way, aggressive and direct, when that when a similar sentiment is communicated subtly, it almost knocks you off your feet. It almost has more power in its subtlety. And that's the art of subtlety. You know, making something apparent enough that it can be noticed, but not so obvious that you can't avoid noticing it. 
And that's really what it is. It's something that is apparent enough that you can notice it, but not so obvious that you can't avoid noticing it. Because I don't tend to like things that I can't avoid. But I also don't like to go searching for things nonstop. There's a balance to that. And that's one of those things, you know, being subtle. That's something that you will try and fail at. You know, it, well, I mean, it's, it's not just something you will try and fail at. It's one of those things that you can't even really try at because trying almost immediately makes something obvious. The second that you are trying, that itself is the act of trying is so obvious that everything it will produce is going to be just as obvious as your attempt. So it's some, not something you can force. It's not something you can try to do. But yet it's something we all desire in some way. We all desire subtlety in anything, in everything, anywhere and everywhere it can appear. Something that you can notice if you pay attention, if you are aware enough, but not something that is forced on you. And, you know, just as a result of that, as as a result of our desire for subtlety, we are continually entering and exiting states of subtlety. And those subtle states themselves can be so subtle that you don't even notice them. But then when you do notice them, that's what takes you out of that state. It's kind of similar to a flow state. It's similar to a lot of things in that way, to, to real magic. Because to become too aware of it, to become too conscious of it, is to try. And there's that word again, try. It's to try to kind of use it. And, and then you start, you, you know, you're no longer in it. You're, you know, you're no longer in it if you're noticing it. Um, it's just one of those things that happens. So we're continually going in and out of these subtle states. And uh, it's not a bad way to live, though. You know, even if you're going in and out. I mean, I don't know that there's a way to just live in a completely subtle state. You know, and that word has ties to subliminal. Obviously, the word subtle has a connection to the word subliminal, uh, the same prefix. And that's kind of what it is, too. Maybe it's that we're going in and out of subliminal states, the word sublime, and what that means beyond the band. You got to look beyond the band, man. Um, and that's, you know, what the creative process is. That's what creation itself is. It's not just the destruction of the empty spaces. It's going in and out of subliminal states. It's going in and out of subtlety. And uh, this show, you know, I think this show completely destroys subtlety. I mean, at least it's creative, but I think this show pretty much threw subtlety out the window. Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe not completely, but I think uh, just inevitably when you talk... When you just ramble, you destroy a lot of subtlety. But again, it's going in and out of subtlety. You know? Like, doing this show is kind of entering a state where you just shatter all of the subtlety. And then, uh, maybe when I'm not thinking about all this stuff, when I'm not thinking at all, I can kind of fade back into that subtle, subliminal sort of state. But speaking of creativity and creation, that's one of the topics this time of year. 
I mean, I forget that the word creation has the connotations it does as far as Christianity and all of that go, because all of that is just kind of built in. Like, I don't spend time pondering evolution or creationism or any of these things. To me, they just flow right into each other. I don't see them as disharmonious or mutually exclusive at all, and not even in an intelligent design uh, you know, I'm not even using the intelligent design argument, which was sort of a Christian way of reconciling with science by being like, you know, we believe in science, but we believe that it was designed in in a certain way by a deliberate form of intelligence that we call God. And I don't have any issue with that. I'm just not trying to play this game of, oh, it's called intelligent design. Because, I mean, at the bottom of all this, or the top, or all around, or both the bottom and the top, wherever you want to go with this, there's something beyond our comprehension. And you can look at that as a form of intelligence. The fact that anything exists at all, and the fact that so many systems that work and make sense to us, despite all of the confusion we're born into and that we continue to try to deny as we get older and believe that we've learned, you know, it's still, we're still just, I mean, again, we're going in and out of these states of subtlety with life itself. And uh, I feel like that's sort of the way even nature communicates to us where it's like nature will show us systems and relationships between things that just scream at us, like, this had to have been deliberate. Something had to have thought about this, almost like a, a grand engineer. You know, we see things like that in nature, but then nature also turns around and hits us with something that doesn't seem to make any sense, something that's just purely vicious, something that's just completely confusing. You know, so... Even nature itself kind of goes in and out of those states of subtlety. But yeah, the topic of creation, my uncle was talking to me a lot about it recently because he thinks a lot about it in a Christian sense, whereas, you know, I'm not a Christian. This is going to be a very Christian episode, it turns out, um, but it's also going to be a pagan episode. This episode is going to be where Christianity and pag- and paganism meet, and I don't want to come across like I'm somehow a representative of either of those things. I don't want to do this episode like I am some Christian or I am some pagan or somebody who refers to himself under those names. And I know it can be annoying when somebody doesn't just use the words that make it convenient. You know, someone who is like, oh, well, I'm into these ideas and I do have faith in this or I do believe in this and then they also refuse to commit to something. But I'm completely comfortable with that myself, so oh well. Well, anyway, this first song here we're going to play, actually we already played a song, which was Purcell's King Arthur, and it was Your Hay is Mowed. And uh, it's just that's a good one. That one, I feel like, just established the mood I want for this episode. I don't want this episode to feel like a Christmas episode. I know I've done a more overt, you know, I've played Christmas songs on this show before. I'm not going to do that today. I don't know. It's winter. Whether you think it's, whether it's Christmas or Yule, whatever it is you see right now as, I think that it is the heart. It is at the heart of Christianity in all of its different 
interpretations in all of the different ways it manifests in this world. It is also at the heart of paganism, at least European paganism. And I think that Christianity and paganism are unlikely allies in 2020 for sure, but I think that that alliance has been building. Strangely enough, I think those things are actually in harmony right now, and that's one of the reasons I want to do this episode, is I do feel there is some almost neo-Anglo-Saxon phenomenon happening, where it's not that anybody is being forced into anything or coerced, and we've seen where very unlikely sort of alternative people have become Catholics and Christians in recent years, at least in the places that I'm looking Not everybody may have noticed this, but I certainly see it. And I also see a lot of people getting into pagan ideas, like all of the girls who have been calling themselves witches kind of as a half joke for the last decade. You know, that itself is a form of some sort of, they're joking, but they're also drawn to mysticism. These girls are into astrology. They like candles. You know, it, it is a part of their thinking, even though there's something sort of—it's it's like every joke. You know, you call yourself a witch once as a joke. Next time you do it, it's a little less of a joke. And next thing you know, you're just calling yourself a witch all the time. But there has been this sort of new neo-paganism that isn't directly associated with what we've called neo-paganism for a number of decades— So there's this sort of neo-paganism as well as this neo-Christianity, and it comes from people who I don't believe had a solid background in either of those. They didn't come from families or parts of the world where those things are reinforced. You know, at least that's my observation. So making this episode sort of a crossroads between them is not the theme, but it's going to be a part of this episode for sure. But we're going to start out with a song about creation itself, and it's not just about creation. The name of the song is Creation, and it's a standard every night to school night style song by the Seville's, a doo-wop sort of tune, and we're not going to play a lot of that, though. Like I was getting at, you know, sort of like I do the summer episode. This is going to be a winter episode where I play a variety of music. Nothing too out there, but it's going to be stuff that I associate with this time of year, that I associate with this loose theme that I'm hitting on today. But we're going to start it out with something standard, a standard school night hymn, the Seville's, talking about creation and asking questions related to what the Seville's, whoever that is, whoever it is that wrote this song, whether it was somebody in the Seville's, somebody else, they want to know when something is going to be created for them.
the Seville's with creation and he was asking in that song where this girl is who God created for him and don't go thinking that's a sexist idea because you know God created this girl for him but God also created him for her he's just giving his perspective here you know don't make any presumptions about that I know that's what people do now But uh, we're going to continue with some similar themes here. But we're going to change styles, going to change genres of music. And we're going to play a block, an early block. You know, this early on in episodes, I don't typically do a whole block, but I think that's what we need. I think we need a block. And uh, we're going to play a block of Messiah. And not the famous Messiah, not the well-known Messiah from, I guess, Switzerland, who plays uh, blasphemous music. This is a completely different Messiah. I believe from the U.S., actually. It almost doesn't sound U.S. to me. There's no accent or anything, but I don't know. I guess I'm just surprised. You know, things that are this holy just don't seem like they're from anywhere. I think that's what I'm hearing. Because this is holy music. Uh, This Messiah was a Christian metal band from the early 80s. And uh, didn't do much, but what they did is incredible. And the first song here is Where Are You? Which is a nice follow-up to the Seville's there, who were asking a very similar question. Except in this case, that's new. Uh, In this case, in this case, uh, I don't know what speech impediment replaces C's with Q's. um, But uh, it's just, it's, you know, I'm talking about important stuff here. But a Messiah uh, with uh, the song, Where Are You? I think they're talking about Jesus. He talks about looking at the sky, or maybe God. Maybe it's asking where God is. Uh, almost all their material is, is heavily Christian. And uh, they are compelling. You know, that's my take. As far as Christian metal goes, you know, you'll meet a lot of metalheads who are afraid of Christian metal. Or they'll act like it's it's dumb. What I used to hear growing up from people who were into rock and metal and all this stuff was the criticism of Christian metal was that it was some kind of cash-in. Like it was bands who were trying to make money off a very specific demographic who will give them money just for being Christian. And, and I don't doubt that that happens. People do everything. But there's a lot of compelling Christian metal, and I, I was never against the idea of listening to Christian metal when I was, say, a teenager. 
but I just didn't come across it. I didn't have somebody who could introduce me to good Christian metal, and a lot of it was obscure, or a lot of it wasn't the kind of thing that was going to be past word of mouth if you were a teenager in the late 90s, early 2000s, getting into metal. You know, it just wasn't part of the conversation. So I, I myself was never opposed to the idea of Christian music. It just wasn't accessible to me. And I was always told that it was terrible. Everybody always said, oh, Christian metal's terrible. It takes the real spirit of rock. It, it takes the real spirit of rock and roll out of it, guys. Uh, it turns out not, you know, no, because heavy metal is spiritual at its core. Even when it's anti-spiritual, even when it goes for that approach, it manages to create its own spirituality because it's simply a part of the music. And, uh, you know, a band who chooses holy things is just as capable of creating something unique and original. I mean, the reality is most things are not going to be unique, original, and many of them are going to be unattractive. So that's definitely true for Christian metal. But I, I don't see where it was the cash-in people made it out to be. Maybe I'm alone in this, but I remember many people used to say that about Christian metal and, and Christian rock as well. Maybe it was a general comment about Christian music, that it's kind of this, oh, we're going to do this for this little niche. I mean, you even hear it about older music. You even hear it about country and pop artists who did gospel music. People will say, oh, that was just a cash-in. Well, for Elvis, it wasn't. You know, while he might have enjoyed the money he made, he Elvis was a very spiritual person. Elvis was a very faithful person. So I wouldn't dismiss his gospel music on that level, but I also wouldn't dismiss it because it's some of it's incredible. So the same is true for metal, and you know, there's a lot of metalheads who have this fear of Christian metal, or they'll say, oh yeah, it's Christian metal, but Manila Road is good, but Trouble is good. You know, you'll hear stuff like that. I don't know that Manila Road counts as a Christian band necessarily. Um, more just light you know, the light side of life, the hero, the light side of heroism. But anyway, so Messiah here, the first two songs, it's going to be Where Are You, which I believe is a spiritual question. I don't believe they're asking about a girl like the Seville's did. And then that's going to be followed with Heavenly Metal, which I'm surprised that I didn't think of that on my own. You know, Heavy Metal, Heavenly Metal. It's clever and I like it. I like the idea of Heavenly Metal. Sounds good. On both those songs, these songs are just, uh, they're powdered sugar. They are just poppy to the core. I don't believe music gets catchier. These are the sort of songs, these first two songs I'm going to play, that you have to limit the amount of times you listen to them so you don't kill it for yourself, because it's so intoxicating when you first hear it. And then the third song here from Messiah is going to be Mistaken Identity, which takes a darker turn. So this is a Messiah block.
as a young man, <clears throat> having been um, drummed into my head at school that we should love one another, and I, I just didn't love my fellow men. I found it easy, easy to love animals. I loved nature, but I saw people as the problem, and I just couldn't. I felt I couldn't love people. I was full of criticism of, of, of society, civilization. Bring it down 
Fantastic block from Messiah there, a good old Messiah block. And uh, that last one had serpentine vocals. Had serpentine vocals. Serpentine, serpentine. I know when this came up on here before, I didn't figure out whether serpentine or serpentine is the preferred pronunciation. I personally like serpentine in the same way I like quarantine more than quarantine serpentine quarantine serpentine quarantine serpentine quarantine serpentine quarantine um but anyway yeah that last one i like that it had uh, distinctly different vocals much more sinister and serpentine opposed to the powdered sugar of the first two songs but what great powdered sugar that was those first two songs uh it's just exactly what you want the kind of the exact kind of sweetness you want but you don't want too much of it cuz it is that sweet but that last one i like that it took a different tone uh, cuz you know it was going for something kind of serpentine it was a snaky song you know that's what it was going for it was talking about ghoulishness demons being all around which it you know it's easy to feel that way Sometimes it feels like demons are all around, but you have to pretend like you can't see them. You know, something that I talk about on night school is banishing ghoulishness from your life. Purifying your life. And that means your own ghoulishness as well as ghoulishness around you. You have to be very careful about letting ghoulishness into your life. Because something's going to get in no matter what. You know, some ghoulishness is going to be a part of your life no matter what. Because you're a living, breathing human. And ghoulishness just... It has a way of working its way in no matter what. If it's not happening to you, there's ghoulishness happening somewhere near you. Even when you don't know it's there. But yeah, again though, I mean, that that song was about seeing, you know... Basically seeing demons everywhere. Because it, it you can feel that way. Sometimes when you yourself feel particularly pure and I don't mean self-righteous but when you just have one of those days where you just kind of feel like your whole system is clean from head to toe your mind feels clean your spirit feels clean your body does you know when you go out into the world sometimes you don't notice anything bad sometimes you feel so good that you just kind of float around and maybe nothing bad comes your way you just feel in harmony with the world but sometimes when you're in that state or a similar state you start to notice all the little creeping ghouls around. And it's not it's not one of those things where you brand people. It's you know you're you're just looking at actions. You're looking at ghoulish actions. It's not like you're thinking all these people are nothing but ghouls and they'll never be anything else except ghouls and I hate them. You know, it's not even that feeling. It's more just like oh, these people's ghoulishness is acting out. That thing that I know is also in me. And that I'm not, fortunately, that it's not really something I'm dealing with today. 
turns out it, these other people are dealing with it and maybe they're not dealing with it too well because they sure look like ghouls to me. Um, and uh, the thing is, though, you can't treat them that way. You know, when you feel like demons are all around you, you have to pretend like you can't see them. You have to not even treat them like demons. And demons are generous. Demons are generous in that they love to give you opportunities to interact with them. And they have plenty of time to waste on you. Never forget that. When you're dealing with a demon, they have plenty of time to waste on you. And they want nothing more than for you to waste your time on them. And you see that with people. Like, if you've ever seen people who get in a fight in public. Because, I mean, that's a great example of the ghoulishness that I'm talking about. It's a practical ghoulishness. I'm not talking about people becoming possessed by some obvious supernatural force that changes what they look like. I'm talking about people who do things in just mundane situations that are ghoulish. Like if you've seen two men get in an argument that either veers into violence or whatever it is, basically just that sort of energy, the fact that those people are willing to drop everything and those people probably have a plan for the day. They're at the grocery store. They're planning on going home and doing something. They have something they're going to watch, maybe something they're going to do. At the very least, they're going to eat. And they're willing to drop all of that and risk dying, hurting themselves, hurting somebody else, going to jail just because of like maybe somebody cut in front of them in line or pushed their shopping cart a little too far and it hit their cart. You know, people will drop everything. And that can only be explained to me as ghoulishness. Not that those people are fundamentally bad, but there is an inner ghoulishness that has not been tamed. And when you, st when you see stuff like that, it does feel like demonic possession. Like, it seems like demonic possession is the only explanation for an otherwise rational person basically throwing their life away for a tiny reason in a split second. But it happens a lot. Um... Uh, and they also, and when someone's like that, they want to invite you in. Like when someone flies into some kind of irrational anger for no reason, maybe it's in traffic, maybe it is just this incident where guys get in fights over like shopping carts. Um, you know, they they want you to give in in the same way they're giving in. And that's kind of what I mean by they're willing to waste their time because they have all the time in the world to give in to those desires or those impulses, and in that moment, since they've given in, they want nothing more than to have a sparring partner. Um, and the thing is, too, like even if you're feeling brave, you can't go looking for demons without becoming a demon yourself. You know, when you go looking for demons, you might very well find out that you're one. And you found one. You found the demon. Turns out it's you. Oh, you were a de oh, you're a demon hunter? Oh, you're a demon hunter. That's so cool. Have you looked in the mirror yet? <laughs> you know, it's the truth, though. Uh, all you can do is be vigilantly non-demonic. That's all you have to do. It's so easy, yet it's not because we're tempted all the time. But all you have to do is be vigilantly non-demonic. And I'm not even telling you you have to be anti-demonic. It's not like these other social issues people talk about where they say... You know, the example is like, oh, being non-racist isn't good enough. You have to be actively anti-racist. In this case, being simply non-demonic is perfectly good enough. 
you don't even need to be anti-demonic because it turns out the more anti-demonic you think you are, the more that you are playing the same game as demons, the more likely you are to invite demons in. And if you're inviting demons in, even if you think that you're like their combatant, you're still playing that game. And as far as I'm concerned, you're pro-demonic. Being anti-demonic is pro-demonic because you play the demons game. So just be non-demonic. You know the word non non-denominational is that word non-denominational. Well, uh, here's a, a similar new word for you, which is non-demonic, non-demonic. And you know, so often the pro and anti crowds are playing the same game. So you have to remember, if you don't want that game to exist, you can't play it for either team. That's usually how that works. So just be non-denominational, I can't even say it, be a non-denominational, non-demonic, Johnny mnemonic. But uh, anyway, continuing on with the playlist here, uh, this next one is a good response to a song about demons. It's Fall of Lucifer by Trouble from their Psalm 9 album. And, you know, I was one of those people who didn't get into trouble until later. Like when I was in a doom metal phase, when I was a teenager, I kind of skipped over trouble, not because they're Christian, but just uh, that sort of sound wasn't what I was looking for. And I didn't get, again, I didn't get properly exposed to it. You know, there was a point in time where even with the internet, even being a teenager who had the internet, it wasn't like you could hear everything right away. It wasn't like everything was one click away. So even if you could find something that didn't necessarily give you exposure to it, even if you could hear about something. So Trouble was a little bit later for me, but now, I mean, Psalm 9, it was in my car for three months straight. I'm actually sick of it. I'm actually sick of Trouble right now, but I think that Trouble fits in perfectly with this episode here with Fall of Lucifer.
Yeah, that one was heavy, but not particularly doomy. One of their more driving songs. Uh, but uh, yeah, Trouble's a great band. I'm glad that I came around to them, particularly particularly that album. But yeah, that is one of those bands, like I was mentioning earlier, who you'll hear metalheads who will be like, uh, I don't really like Christian bands, but uh, you know, Trouble's Trouble's a heavy band. I, I do like Trouble. I mean, I even had a little interaction like that a couple years ago. I went on a hiking trip with some people here, uh, and uh, I was playing Manila Road in my car when we, we were driving, and you know, again, I don't think of Manila Road as just like a straight-up Christian band, although, you know, I can see where those themes make their their way in. There's an association there, at least. And uh, a guy I was with, a friend of mine, who I don't know super well, but still a friend, he was like, oh, Manila Road. Like, everybody was excited to hear Manila Road, but uh, he was like, yeah, you know, for a Christian band, uh, they're great. Uh, and he was like, and the other one is Trouble. And I, I was like, oh, trouble. And I right, I had the CD right there. I had this Psalm 9 in the car. That's another one that really hasn't left my car much since I I got it. I got it at, it was one of those fun, like, half-price books finds where it was a dollar some years back. Um, but, yeah, we're going to continue here. We're going to go more in a pagan direction. And not just more. We're going to go completely in a pagan direction. And we're going to play Lord Wind. The great Lord Wind, you know, the project of Rob Darkin, who, you know, really doesn't get more pagan than him. Doesn't get more, in, I mean, nobody's really contributed to underground pagan music more than he has. And this is Lord Wind from the first Lord Wind album in the 90s. And it's Signal for Fight. Signal for Fight. And it's great because it's almost completely acoustic. It's it not like nothing I've ever heard. This is some of the purest pagan uh, music I've ever heard because, you know, I've, I'm obviously no stranger to most pagan metal. And, you know, both the raw stuff as well as the, you know, heavily layered orchestrated stuff, uh, nothing sounds like this. And this isn't metal. You know, this is something else, obviously, taking from, I mean, you can hear who's doing it. You know, you can hear in this who is responsible it has a sort of a flair that reminds you of this guy's other bands that actually sound nothing like this, you know, his metal bands and things like that. But uh, this is just a perfect one to me. This just sounds like winter. It sounds like nature. To me, this is what pagan music should sound like, and this does sound like it, which makes it just a perfect pagan hymn. <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah, that was another Polish band like Lord Wind, but that was Thy Worshipper from one of their demos, and it's a song that translates to Where the Nights Are Longer Than the Days. It's translated from Polish into that, Where the Nights Are Longer Than the Days, and you know what time of year that is. It's the time of year we're in right now. And that's a good one because I feel like I may have played it. I have some, maybe some drunken, hazy memory of playing that same track on an old Every Night's a School night. But when I look back on those days, I might as well have just blasted it one time when I was drunk really loud. And that felt like I played it on Every Night's a School night. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know the story. That might be the first time I've played it. But it's a good one for this episode. It's a good one for for this time of year. And it's one that, uh, you know, just there is such a joy to obtaining things. And I remember years back, uh, you know, you could just find collections of demo tapes. Like some guy would be getting rid of his collection and, you know, for 20 bucks you could buy, you know, I don't know, eight demos from him because it's not stuff that seemed particularly valuable to anyone at that moment. And you'd end up with stuff like that. And Thy Worshipper was a band that I had sort of, sort of a... I was I was interested in hearing them at some point. I hadn't I hadn't heard them and I was interested in hearing them at some point because I knew a member of another band who I liked had been in them and stuff like that, but it, it didn't seem like a high priority, but this guy was getting rid of a bunch of tapes many years ago and among those were a couple of the Thy Worshipper demos and I got them and just loved them. Uh, it's definitely I don't know, that to me sounds like pure paganism. You don't have to do much. You know, it's got the acoustic guitars along with electric, but they're not trying too hard to go for... You know, I mean, we're at a point now where if you hear the term pagan metal, there's a very specific visual that you get, and a lot of it's very glossy. That's what gets me, is a lot of our idea of pagan metal now is very glossy, And a lot of it's similar. The aesthetic is similar. The sound is similar. We sort of know what to expect. We know the sorts of melodies they're going to play. But, but, you know, going back to the early 90s, it wasn't entirely established what that was. So you had these small pockets of bands, especially in Europe, doing what pagan metal sounded like to them using more limited means. And what you end up with is music like the last two songs you heard. So to me, just a a perfectly fitting song for this time of year where the nights are, are longer than the days. And we're going to move on here. We're going to go back to, we're going to kind of merge the two worlds here because we're going to play a Ronnie Dio and the Prophets song. So still a metal artist, but long before he was a metal artist, we're going to do one of Ronnie Dio and the Prophets songs from the 1960s and this is walking alone which this must be a song this must be a famous song other people performed you know some of that early Dio doo-wop was written by him I know that I'm not sure this one was I feel like this might be a well-known song and I'm just blanking on who else did it maybe not I don't know it's got a lot of sweetener maybe it's all the sweetener that's making me think that because it's heavily orchestral which I avoid you know, when it comes to doo-wop, when it comes to teener pop from the 1950s and 60s, I tend to avoid 
the sweetener if I can. But sometimes you can't avoid it, and it's still good. Sometimes it's good. And so this song, it's a little less... It's not so much doo-wop. It's more in its own uh, vocal area. Uh, but I think it's a good episode to play it. It's a cold song. It's called Walking Alone, which has sort of an inherent coldness. You know, biologically. Walking alone is biologically colder than walking with other people because it's only one person generating heat. I'm making this joke for all the science fans. This is a joke for all the science fans out there. I know about body heat. I know a thing or two about body heat. But walking alone, you do generate less body heat. But the song itself, it sounds like a cold song and the sweetener makes it even colder. The sweetener is like sheets of ice freezing on the surface of the song. Walking alone at night, wondering how you are, hoping that you are still thinking of me, counting the stars at night, counting the days you're gone, knowing inside just why it had to be, just like a gets me is Dio's versatility doesn't feel like versatility. He's versatile. I mean, he's the only person I know of who did both doo-wop and heavy metal. He's the only person I know who authentically bridged that gap, not just at his own, you know, leisure. You know, he's not somebody who like, oh, it's 2020 and I'm going to have a doo-wop retro band and a heavy metal retro band because I can do anything and there's no new culture, so I'm just going to recreate things. 
You know, it's not even like someone trying to do that. He's somebody who was there when doo-wop was relevant. He's someone who was there when that teen pop was relevant and current. And he's someone who was still there when heavy metal emerged. So it's just very interesting. I know I've gone on that tangent every time I play Dio, but it's always worth mentioning. And like what gets me, though, is like I just said, Dio's versatility doesn't feel like versatility. Like even though he's able to adapt to these different sounds and do it so damn well, so darn well, he just seamlessly fits in and you're not conscious of it. Like you don't listen to Dio's early material with the Prophets and the Red Caps and then listen to Sabbath Dio or Dio solo and go, gee, it's amazing he does such different things. It's amazing this Dio guy, this Dio guy. It's amazing how he sounds like a completely different thing. You know, it's not even like that. It's not like you listen to him and you think he's doing something completely different. He he still sounds completely like himself, and it doesn't seem like he's trying to do something else necessarily. Like, of course, he does a, a different style. He is playing a different style of music, but it's just amazing how... Somebody can be so versatile, versatile, versatile. This is going to be like a serpentine, serpentine thing. Versatile, versatile, versatility. No, I know that one. I know versatility. But it's just he's able to seamlessly do what he does no matter what it is he's doing. And that's impressive to me. Because he's not a shapeshifter. He's still Ronnie Dio. He's still in the body. He's still the shape. He is still in the shape of Ronnie Dio, so he didn't even have to transform himself. And that, to me, is true versatility. Versatility isn't being able to play, you know, the saxophone and the keyboard and uh, the trumpet. Although that is cool, I guess. You know, if you do something cool with it, it's cool. But, you know, that to me isn't what I think of when I think of true versatility. True versatility to me is someone who can sing and be themselves singing, but just have it fit perfectly with dramatically different styles of music. Or like somebody who can play guitar in multiple blands, if that isn't the best slip of the tongue that I've ever made, blands. How come I've never even made that joke? Oh, you like blands? Oh, you're into bands, huh? Oh, you like music? Who are your favorite blands? <laughs> I'm going to have to remember that one. Uh, but anyway, the point's been made. Uh, you know, no matter what bland Ronnie Dio is in, he just seamlessly fits with it without dramatically changing who he is or what he does. And we're going to move back here. We're going to... Go back to the very first song of this episode, not counting the intro, not counting uh, My Hay is Mode from Purcell's King Arthur, not counting that, but going back to the Seville's song where he's asking God, essentially, or I mean, he's saying God created a woman for him and he's looking for her. This is a similar vibe. It's Bobby Leone, I Thank the Lord. I'm going to give you two guesses, three guesses. Uh, as to what he's thanking the Lord for. What do young men thank the Lord for? Bobby Leone here with the answer. Ooh, 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 ooh. I thank the Lord above for sending me 
It's really a no-brainer that people thank the Lord, that they thank God when they find a mate. It's not surprising that that brings that sort of feeling out of people. And uh, there's a lot of talk about how religion manipulates that. Religion manipulates marriage, manipulates procreation for that matter, to serve it. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not going to deny that that happens. I'm not going to say that doesn't happen. Like any other thing that could happen, it will and does happen. So I'm not into this to deny that there is a manipulative, manipulative, self-serving element to the way that religion has attached itself to the union between men and women to the unions between anybody really whatever sort of union you want to come up with I mean uh, there is a spiritual component to that and so of course religion has a ceremonial process as well as a set of rules that go along with that a set of guidelines if nothing else Um, but it's not surprising either that you know for the sake of teen pop songs from the 50s, and I know that that was an obscure one, Bobby Leone, I Thank the Lord, but it, it's a common theme where they're, even for these teenage crushes, finding somebody to go steady with, that's hardly some sort of ceremonial. I mean, it is. People giving each other rings, letting them wear their letterman jacket, something they earned. They had to earn those letters, babe. We had to earn these letters. So my girlfriend can show off that her man earned letters, and that's impressive. In the community you're in, which is high school, it's impressive to earn something, to earn some sort of badge, because that's what those letters are. But, But anyway, you know, it's not surprising that that would even play out on a teenage level, the idea of 
your union with a woman, even if it's just going steady, even if it's just going out for milkshakes, to still see that as somehow spiritually significant, as if God planned it. And I, Would people be better served thinking that way now? Would people be better served if they tended to view relationships that way? I don't know, because I don't know that I ever have. Then again, I have certainly experienced synchronicity. I've experienced what I would consider more than routine phenomena in connection with romance. And I, at the time, I wouldn't have said it was God. But when you're dealing with some sort of strange thing going on, and there, you know, there are these little lights flashing here and there in the form of synchronicity, in the form of coincidence, connections, because for whatever reason, romance tends to produce a lot of synchronicity. I find that when I meet somebody new and there's a spark, suddenly there's a flurry of synchronicity that can't be explained by mere statistical coincidence. And the same goes for adventures. You know, it seems like when I'm traveling or when I'm with a particular person or set of people with certain friends, something kind of opens up that that allows for those experiences, those signals and those signs. And you don't need to try to find any meaning in the signs themselves. You just say, oh, the signs are happening. And usually those signs come in certain scenarios, in certain situations. And they usually come dot, 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 subtly, as I stammer, subtly. No, that's, again, going back to the little subtlety discussion earlier. It's a subtle experience, and that's often what synchronicity is. That's often what these little winking lights, you know, sometimes it feels like the whole universe or God himself is winking at you. Uh, but that's what those experiences are. They're often subtle. They're not a big, they're not a, a fireworks show. They're things that you have to be in the right place of mind to notice them, but you can't be looking for them. There's no such thing as a synchronicity hunter. You can't hunt synchronicities. You can't force them to happen. But you can be in a place of mind to notice them when they do happen. And that's all you have to do. And you don't even have to do anything else. You don't even have to notice them. They're going to happen either way under certain conditions. Why that is, I don't even care why it is. I'm not looking for anything more from an experience like synchronicity than it already offers. Because the simple fact of synchronicity, and I do consider it a fact because it happens... The, the simple fact of synchronicity to me is more than enough. I ask nothing more from synchronicity than what it already presents because that to me communicates an interconnectedness. That to me communicates Indra's net. That's an illustration to me of Indra's net in action. And why would I want more than that? Because that's more than enough as it is. But anyway... Uh, I was just riffing on the idea that we often feel something spiritual when it comes to romance, especially when we are genuinely excited about it. 
I mean, even when we don't have it, people will ask, they will pray. Even people who are secular and don't actually pray, still in their own way, pray. Praying for them might just be scouring tinder. Praying, oh, I see what it is. You're too good to pray for a boyfriend, so you just uh, swipe through Tinder. That's a form of prayer. Every time you go on to Tinder, you're making a prayer. Please, God, please, God, please, God. May there be a girl today on Tinder who fits everything I'm looking for. And may she find the same in me. You know, every time you go onto a dating site, a dating app, an app, a dating app, every time you go on a dating app, you're saying a prayer. You're asking God to find you your mate. You just don't realize you're saying a prayer. It's true, though. That's what you're doing. So anyway, I'm not surprised that in sappy teenage love songs, you have doo-wop singers thanking the Lord. Or asking the Lord, you know, when he hasn't provided a woman yet. Uh, But you see it play out in all sorts of ways. And people are very spiritual about romance because I think there's something inherently spiritual about it. There's something inherently spiritual about the union between a man and a woman and what that produces. Uh, The fact that the religions, the fact that the religions have noticed is no surprise either. And uh, do I always agree with their approach? No. But I recognize that their approach isn't inherently manipulative. I think there's a reason why marriage is such a, a deeply ingrained part of religion. But anyway, you know, that as far as that song goes, there were, I like those oohs. They kind of gave, gave it a little bit of a J. Frank Wilson vibe, but it's worked into a different sort of song here than you would expect it from. But yeah, a very sappy, atmospheric, slow burn surrounded by a thick fog. That's how I would describe a, that Bobby Leone song. But we're going to continue on here. This is turning out to be a, a, a good length. This is going to be a good length. And we're going to play a song by Crystal Knight, another 80s heavy metal band with the song It's No Crime. I love the title. I think I just love any title that has the word crime in it. Uh, there's that, I played a doo-wop song, I think it was Nikki and the Nobles, Crime Don't Pay. I just like the word crime. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily like crime, but I like the word crime. The word crime. Is that a word crime? But this is by Crystal Knight. Which, you know, I feel like, you know, stripper name jokes are old hat. I mean, they are for sure. I think the joke of saying, hey, kind of sounds like a stripper's name. But, you know, that joke has kind of died a little bit. But I think in this case, it's worth making that dead joke. It's worth beating that dead horse and saying Crystal Knight does sound like a stripper name. But it's Knight with a K. Crystal Knight, and it's a song, It's No Crime. Life. Now, are there things about that life that I miss? Yes, I'm being honest. You know, the camaraderie I had with my guys. You know, I got your back, you got mine. We were this kind of brotherhood together. 
yeah, I miss that. That was, a, you know, it was a good part of the life, you know, to have that kind of relationship with men. There's nothing more powerful than a relationship among guys that's real and genuine. And you got each other's back. And that's what that life allegedly was built on. Was it always that way? No. But I want to be honest with you, too. You know, I'm a person of faith. And, you know, we serve an amazing God. And he's able to replace that camaraderie I had with the fellowship that I have with many of my brothers in Christ. And I mean that, you know, and it's important. I have a good relationship, a solid relationship with a lot of guys that share my faith. We keep each other accountable. When one guy gets down, we kind of pick him up. That's very important in life.
Another good one. Another good one, as you well heard. You don't need me to tell you that was a good one. A lot of good ones, although we don't have very many good ones left. Although I'm happy with the playlist here today. I'm happy with this here winter edition episode. You know, we're an hour and forty uh, hour and forty eight minutes in, so we're probably going to hit about two hours when all is said and done. And I think that's the perfect amount of time for a winter edition. Every night's a school night. December twenty fourth, Christmas Eve. And uh, you know, I think this music captures. I feel like this music honors what I want it to honor this time of year. You know, I think we have this idea of winter music being either cheesy like Christmas. And, you know, I don't have a problem with Christmas music, but I won't listen to Christmas music. You know, as a substitute, I've been listening to this Baroque Russian guitar, just these instrumental recordings. I don't even know who's making them. You can just get online and find it, but it's this Baroque Russian guitar, and it's, you know, more minimal because one of the reasons I don't listen to a lot of classical music on its own is because, for the same reason, Sweetener, those orchestral pop songs aren't my number one choice in a lot of cases because there's just too much going on, too many layers, they're too produced. So you're hearing the same sort of melodies but played on just a, a guitar in most cases. And I feel like that captures the Christmas spirit without being Christmas music. So I recommend you do the same if you need a little bit of Christmas spirit without such a heavy dose of Christmas. Because Christmas music often feels like you're just huffing pine-scented, you know, perfume or something. It's like it's like huffing just some sort of pine-scented essence, and sometimes it's too much. It's just like straight to your nose. Whereas I feel like there are other substitutes that still honor the time of year, that honor the feeling. And the songs played on this episode today, not intended to be Christmas music, but intended to be pure, intended to be holy. And I think it succeeded in that regard. Both the pagan, the Christian, everything in between. I think this just captured at least how I'm feeling. The sort of mindset that I like to have in winter, one that's not, I don't feel dominated by winter. I just feel like I love this time of year. I love the bitter cold. I was born on December 27th that night, seven o'clock at night. So this is what I was born into. This was the world that I knew. When I entered the world, this was my first glimpse of it. And you have to remember that. You think about that sometimes. You don't You don't even have to care about astrology, which I like. I like astrology. Not a, a fanatic. Don't know a lot about it. I'm just a, sort of a casual follower of astrology. But even if you don't really believe in astrology, you can look at the time of year you were born and the time of night you were born and remember that my first glimpse of the world outside of that womb was this season, this sort of atmosphere. And I do think that says something about people. The fact that I find a certain level of comfort. You know, I like having a warm house, but I just love a nice cold day in December. And it's good because that was the first thing I got a taste of. It was the first thing I experienced, and that has to do something to you. It has to color your taste, color your perception in some way that when you enter the world... The season is a certain way. This, the, the air is a certain way. And that's what you come to know. 
But yeah, we're going to close out here with uh, a couple of uh, songs by the same group. Not to be confused with Lord Wind, who I played earlier. This is Lordian Winds. Lordian Winds. Not Lord Wind, Lordian Winds. No connection, even. This was, uh, you know, there was the Christian metal band Warlord from the 80s. One of the best. Warlord is fantastic. And I, I was sort of aware of Warlord... And quite a few years back, my friend Miles, who was a real jewel hunter, you know, he's a real master jewel hunter. He, you know, discovered some side projects related to Warlord and introduced, you know, a whole crew of people to it. Uh, He made me a little bootleg tape that had the Lordian Winds demo on it. And normally I would be reluctant to play this. This would normally be a jewel that I keep clutched to my heart. And, you know, I don't even take credit for finding it. You know, it was my friend Miles who discovered this. And nobody was talking about it at the time. You know, nobody, a lot of people still hadn't come around to Christian metal. A lot of people were still just stuck in a certain place. I mean, recently this was reissued on vinyl. All of the various, you know, Warlord, Lordian Guard, Lordian Winds, all this stuff is being reissued and people are starting to notice. People who didn't notice in the past are starting to notice now. And that's all well and good. You know, I want people to like good things. But I do feel a certain uh, possessiveness with this. You know, even though it wasn't me, it was my friend who kind of discovered it uh, as far as, you know, anybody I've ever known goes anybody that i even see um i i feel a certain possessiveness myself and i would almost want to just keep this to myself but it's been reissued i feel like it fits perfectly with the theme i feel like in particular the lordian winds project managed to take christian themes and give them such just an intuitive pagan sound and i think anybody i think what i'm getting at with some of this heavy metal stuff is that anybody who is playing heavy metal and doing it earnestly doing it with a spiritual connection to that music is a pagan even if they're singing christian themes i mean you go back to black sabbath and their christian themes And I would consider Black Sabbath a very pagan band. I mean, Black Sabbath is almost an example of Anglo-Saxonism in music, to me, in a way. Where there is something, I mean, I know later on they did the Tear album that was directly, you know, influenced by Norse paganism. So Sabbath came around to, you know, very overt pagan themes. But they weren't afraid to be Christian either. They weren't afraid to talk about God that was a part of their world, too. And they managed to, in my opinion, seamlessly integrate all of that into one whole. And so I don't think it's a surprise that heavy metal was attractive to bands interested in, at the very least, exploring Christian themes. And I don't know that anybody did it better. I don't know that anybody did it as inspiringly. And they also managed to put the fear of God into you. You know, I think anytime you explore Christian themes, especially through music or the arts, I think you need some of that Old Testament terror to go along with the New Testament sort of what could be called almost a New Age philosophy. Be kind and non-judgmental. 
You know, I think you do need something that doesn't necessarily, the lyrics don't need to be lyrics of fear, but I think the nature of heavy metal is going to communicate that if you do it right, if you do it in earnest, if you mean it. And Lordian wins, William Samus, all of his projects, all of his bands, it really comes across. He really means it. This is one that is made its rounds heavily among my group of friends for, I would say, easily the past decade, probably more. Whenever it was, Miles turned us all onto it. And I stand by it. It's something that has deeply inspired me. Deeply, just on a personal level. We're getting away from creativity. We're getting away from all that. This is something that has just been a subliminal part of my life now for several years. And uh, I'm going to share it here first with the song My Name is Man and then Stygian Passage, which actually makes references to the astrological zodiac. And then after all this, we're going to close out with a, a little bit of Purcell for Folded Flocks. But first here, you're going to hear Lordian Winds. So it's the season, it's winter. But there's a lot you can do in winter. Winter provides a lot of opportunities, even though that isn't the reputation that it has. And I think winter is the time when your imagination and your spirit are in many ways the most engaged with what it is to be alive because you're not, a, you're not distracted by all of this external life that is growing and blooming, people being active, the things that people do in the spring and summer and to some extent the fall. You know, winter slows things down and all of those processes become a lot more internalized, but they don't have to be about just you. They can be about larger things because the people who get depressed in the winter, they're the people who everything is internalized, but it doesn't go anywhere. Whereas I think the people who thrive during the winter, it's not that they've shut off those same internal processes, it's that those internal processes have a relationship to the larger forces that are out there.
by gathering of winds. A chariot of silver and gold descendeth and taketh me in. My eyes behold wonder as I gaze on this land. To Sarah I bow down my head, to heaven I raise up my head. Sidereal skies across the Stygian way.
and the return in the spring? Are we talking reincarnation or are we talking uh, well, atoms and molecules being recycled? You see, in a, a, a really clean death, there's nothing to reincarnate. Take my hand and walk 
God, I know I can be strong to make this land our home. If I must fight, I'll fight to make this land our own until. 